Good morning. That was a pretty powerful time of worship this morning. What a, what a blessing. Well, right now during the 1020 service, starting this week for the next 10 years, we have the Explore the Bible class. They're jumping into 1 Thessalonians today. It's over across the patio in small church. And so um, if you thought that was happening here, I'm not offended if you get up and walk over towards that right now. Um, but if you want to start joining that, then maybe go to that class during 1020 and stay for the 1140 service uh, in here starting next week would be a good time to jump in. And a few people were asking, so I'll just give you an update. If you were here for last week's sermon, yes, the seafood boil went well. Now, um, there was only one person there from Louisiana, and he may have a different interpretation of how well it went, but all of my ignorant friends that have never had a seafood boil said it was the best they've ever had. And so I'm really, I, we had a lot of fun. I've, I've committed to, I think the, the most fun was just dumping it all on that cement table we have in our backyard. So I'm just going to do that with all my food. Today at lunch, whatever Shannon makes, I'm just going to dump it over. I think it'll be a good example for the kids to do that. Well, it was 2011, October 28th in New Jersey, where it was a random freak snowstorm. I mean, like it should not be snowing even in New Jersey on October 28th. And so that was just not common for us. There was so much sleet and hail that it formed on a tree branch and came crashing down an inch or two in front of my mother's car that day. It would have totaled her car if, she, if, she, if it hit her. What was the Lord trying to show us on that day? Freak storm, crashing branches on that day that my daughter was born, right? What was he trying? I think he was trying to show us what it was gonna be like to be a parent. That may be the sign that he was giving us, but you would have been proud of me. I, for the first time ever, I survived 12 hours of labor. And so I thought that was good for my first time. I, I, got, I got through it all. Shannon did a little worse than I did, but I, I did good for that. And, and at that first moment, when Shannon was holding Abigail, her eyes were shut. And I said, Abigail, and eyes pop open, look right at me. I just took my wallet right out, handed her my credit card right there. <laughs> And I said, you've got me, you've got me already. That night, I changed my first diaper. I had never held a child until, honestly, until a month before I convinced some friend of mine to let me hold their child. I was like, well, if I'm going to drop a kid, it shouldn't be mine. So I held some other kid like this, and then there's pillows all around, and I held the child like this, terrifying. And that night, I changed my first diaper in my life. I hadn't even practiced before that. And so I said, Shannon, I think Abigail needs a diaper change. She goes, you'll be fine. I'm like, the lack of support from her. She was acting tired for some reason. So I changed my first diaper and I've been uh, loving that little girl ever since. You know, I think it was either Shannon or my mom that said this very common and popular phrase, you probably heard it, uh, that when a woman gives birth, she finally knows what it feels like for a man to have a cold right? You've heard it. You know, you've heard. I thought that was very sensitive and supportive of her to say that. She finally understood on that day. You know, the UN estimates that 385,000 children are born worldwide every day. That's like 140 million a year. And today we'll see in John chapter 3 that while everyone is born of a woman, to be a child of God, you have to be born of God. You have to be born again born from above. And we see right away in John chapter 3 that Jesus welcomes skeptics, sinners, and seekers. Whoever we are, we can go to Jesus and his arms are wide open to talk to us about this good news. And we see someone just like that 
in John chapter 3, verse 1, where it says, Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And so we have Nicodemus here showing up on the scene. He comes at night. If you want to give him the benefit of the doubt, maybe it's because he wanted to spend more time with Jesus and Jesus' schedule was more available. Or it could have been that he was nervous, right? He was a part of a group of people that didn't really respect Jesus, and he might have had a different opinion on who he thought Jesus was. And so he may have come secretly. Either way, he is seeking something. Nicodemus is identified as a Pharisee. And so he is religious. He has studied the Old Testament through and through, knows the verses about the coming Messiah, knows the law. He's also respectable because he's on the ruling council. People appointed him to leadership. They would see him as a leader and say, this is a respectable person. Later in the Gospel of John, we discover that he's also rich, right? He comes bringing all kinds of expensive ointments and oils to anoint the body of Jesus at his burial. And so he's, he seems to believe in Jesus by the end of this story. So I say all that to say he's religious, respectable, rich. We, we would look at him and say, seems like he has his act together, right? He's religious. I, I really I appreciate his reputation. He's making good decisions. And so why does he come to Jesus? Well, he knows there's still something lacking in his life. Everyone would look to him for advice and, and counsel on how to be a part of the kingdom of God, and he knew something was missing. And it reminds me of Romans 3.23 that says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Even people like Nicodemus, even those we look around at each other and say, well, that person seems like they have it all together. The unifying thing that we do have in common is that we are sinners and we need to seek the Lord like Nicodemus did. He was a seeker and he went and met with Jesus and Jesus was glad to do that. Jesus never turned anybody away that wanted to come and find him. And what Jesus offers, we see in the next verse, is it's a life transformation that has been impossible for us to do on our own. We have been unable to produce the kind of transformation that Jesus is offering to Nicodemus and to all of us. Look at verse three. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. I appreciate his awkward statement there to spell it out for us. We know that. Thank you, Nicodemus. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Jesus is saying, just like we are born physically, we must be born spiritually to be a part of his kingdom. Nicodemus comes to Jesus obeying the law, and Jesus says, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, you must be born again. Right? God's Spirit must give us new life so that we would have the power to obey the law 
and, and to live for him. We cannot do that on our own. It's an impossible transformation. We know how difficult it is to make changes in our life. Jesus is saying it's impossible. Instead, it must be a work of God. This new birth that we receive is a new life, a new identity, a new family, and even a new purpose for our lives and new desires in our heart, right? He's going to transform us and we won't even want the things we used to want. He's changing us from the inside out. And this has to be a work of God. No child causes themselves to come forth from the womb, right? No, no child says, I will come forth in nine months and, and, and be born here. And if we want to be born of God, it needs to be a work of God. That is a work that only the Spirit of God can do, but we can ask for it. It is a work that God does, and yet he tells us, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And we can stand at that door and knock and say, Jesus, let me in. And he wants to come into our lives. This is a work of God from above. That phrase, born again, in some translations is phrased born from above. And so it's this idea of something that the work of God can, can do. That's it. Nothing that we produce ourselves. But it's confusing, right? Nicodemus is a teacher of the law, and he's thrown off by all this, even though this is referenced in the Old Testament. You see in, in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah, the verses that speak of the new covenant, we would call it this, like the New Testament covenant, it, it shows us that Jesus wants to do a heart change in us. He says, I'll give you this heart of flesh and take away that heart of stone, right? You will be able to follow me because I'm going to write the law on your heart. It will become a desire of yours to follow me. And so he gives the example of the wind. He's like, Nicodemus, you don't have to understand this perfectly. I'm God. My thoughts are, are beyond your thoughts. But you believe in the wind. You hear the sound of the wind, but you can't see it. You see the effect of the wind. You see the trees moving, but you don't see the wind. So it is with those that are born again. We will see not necessarily how that all happens, even when it happened, but we will see the effect of the power of God upon somebody's life. And God will change us and, and transform us in ways that we desire him to. And so it'll start with exterior things, like often people change their speech and their, and their actions, but then the real difficult work of God is when he changes our heart, when he gives us a heart of forgiveness and love, and, and even our thoughts and our emotions are in line with what God wants to do. Nicodemus could be saying, when he uses the phrase, how can someone be, be born when they are old? It, it could be a figure of speech for, how can you teach an old dog new tricks? Like, I'm a Pharisee. I know about the kingdom of God, and you're telling me to forget all that and believe in your teaching? I've been doing this for a while, Jesus. I'm, I'm old. Are you sure? Because the Pharisees thought they had already experienced the inner transformation of the new covenant. And so they were leading other people, saying, follow the law like us, and you'll be a part of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is telling him, actually, you're not a part of the kingdom of God yet. And so this was hard for Nicodemus to understand that the kingdom of God requires more than just doing better. This isn't about moralism, like, oh, I should do more rights than, than wrongs. Mankind does not need reformation as much as he needs a, a radical conversion. God needs to do a work in our hearts, not just that we would try harder. I believe it was one of your pastors that even stood on the stage and said that when he turned 40, he was going to start exercising every single day. 
well, that, that's been really difficult to implement that new habit after 40 years of, of not doing that. I told my wife I would do that at 30, and then I bumped it back a decade because I had to give myself some time. Yesterday, I ran on the treadmill only because I knew I was going to share with you that I hadn't been exercising, but maybe that'll turn into a habit. The best we can do is make some mild adjustments in our lives to make some better decisions and be a little bit healthier, but that doesn't change the heart. God needs to do a work. And the doorway to that work, the doorway to being a part of the kingdom of God, it's a life and death belief in Jesus. It's, it's a belief that is as serious as we could ever imagine, that we don't even have a backup plan. No, if I'm going to be a part of the kingdom of God, if I'm going to heaven, it's because of Jesus alone. There is no plan B that might also work to get me into heaven. I throw myself at the mercy of Jesus Christ. Jesus shows us just how serious our belief in him has to be by giving us an example in Numbers chapter 21. And I want to put a, a symbol on the screen for us to look at that, that goes with this story. There's a medical symbol that maybe you've seen before. It's called the, the rod of Asclepius. You see this pole with a snake? That's the World Health Organization logo. But you also see it pop up on, on ambulances all the time. Sometimes you'll see two snakes wrapped around a pole. That's a, that's a more modern symbol. But this one goes back to um, Homer's writings in the Iliad or the Odyssey in the 8th century that points to this Greek god of medicine, Greek god of healing, um, Asclepius, is, as he's known. But is that where this medical symbol really comes from? Is it, is it eight centuries before Christ, which is pretty old, or is it even farther back, 14 centuries before Jesus? Numbers chapter 21, the oldest reference to any kind of a snake on a pole. This is the story of God's people after they had been set free from Egypt. So they were 400 years enslaved in Egypt, and God came to let them go, and Pharaoh wouldn't do it. Pharaoh wasn't going to let them leave, and so God brought 10 plagues upon the Egyptian people, and, and they could have been avoided if Pharaoh would just let them go, but he wouldn't, and he was stubborn, and so God showed his power and rescued his people. They should only be grateful, right? And they were excited at first, but then as they're heading towards the promised land, and they're eating the same food over and over because God was miraculously providing for a million plus people through manna being there, this miracle food of God. They choose instead to look around and say, why did you even take us out of Egypt? We, we don't have anything to drink. We don't like this food. And the food, the food you've given us, we're, you know, we're frustrated by it. And they basically slap God in the face and say, you're not doing it right. Well, God judges this, this wicked sin after he showed his power and saved them. And he judges them in a very dramatic way. God sends poisonous snakes into the camp that start biting everyone. This is a nightmare. This is snakes on a plane times 10. It's horrible. And our initial reaction when you hear that story is, oh, come on, God, that's a little harsh. And if I were God, I would be benevolent and gentle. And, and, and we, we think that we know better than God God is doing this to discipline them for their sin, but also to bring them back to himself. And it works. Eventually they say, we are sorry for what we said against God and against Moses. And they ask for forgiveness. And so Moses prays and talks to God and says, help us, save us. And God says, I will make a snake and put it on a pole and lift it up. And everyone that looks to it will be healed. What? And so they get to work doing this and they make this bronze snake. They put it on a pole. And word gets out, come to the center of camp and just look at this pole and you'll be healed. 
Can you imagine the reaction people would have? I need a doctor, not a pole to look at. I need someone to, to suck on my snake bite and spit it out like they do on TV. They probably saw the episode. They knew what they needed. They thought it was foolish. And so some came to look at the pole and they were healed and others would not go because they thought, no, this doesn't make sense. I don't understand it. This isn't how I would save us. And they died in their unbelief instead of in belie believing in God's word through his trusted prophet. And Jesus uses this story to say, just like a snake was lifted up on a pole and brought healing, the son of man will be lifted up on the cross. And if we look to him in faith, we will receive healing from our sins. But people think it's foolish, right? And maybe you don't even understand, like, I don't, why would I trust in a convicted criminal on a cross for my salvation? How will that make everything better? And we come back to this question time and time again of saying, yeah, but if I were God, I would do it differently. And we have to decide, are we going to humble ourselves and appreciate God's offer of salvation or just be frustrated and say, I could do this better myself? Paul told the Corinthians that some people think this is foolish. It says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's the power of God to recognize God's loving gift for his people. But we need to do more than just intellectually agree that Jesus was a historical figure. We need to do more than, than Nicodemus originally coming and saying, I, I respect you, Jesus. Respect doesn't help. We need to follow 100% as far as our belief that Jesus can save us and we can't save ourselves. Sometimes in a movie, you'll see a rope bridge that looks all rickety and they come to it. They're running from some bad guys always and they have to decide, do I wait for the bad guys? Or do I cross this bridge and maybe fall? And, and they usually choose the bridge and they're usually okay, but they put their life in that decision, right? Sometimes you see a rope hanging off a cliff people are holding on to, or maybe you, you trust the doctors to, to put you under for a surgery, trusting enough that you will wake up and be better. That's the kind of faith we need to put in Jesus, that it's all in. He is the only one that can help us. Paul told the Ephesians, it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This is a gift from the Lord. We find ourselves when we, when we read the Bible, when we hear the good news of Jesus Christ being offended. But I'm offended because God is identifying us as, as sinners, and we, we forget all about this gift of God. The next verse, John 3, 16, out of 31,102 verses in the Bible, this has got to be the most famous one. And it shows the gift of God, but it shows us just how serious Jesus is about our salvation, that he would come to us to die for us and be a substitute for us. Look at John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus couldn't be more serious about rescuing us. We're going to put a table on the screen here just to show us this is the entire gospel. It says for God, this is the authority. Who has authority to save our souls? Our creator, the one, the one who can save us. So loved the world. This is the motive of God. Instead of us being offended at God calling us sinners, we should focus on the motive. God loves us so much 
that he gave his one and only son. This is the price that had to be paid. We're offended that there's such a place called hell. We're offended that God would think that we deserve to go there. We don't have to because a price has been paid. Jesus suffered the punishment for us so we don't have to. It says that whoever, this is the invitation. And it's a wide invitation. There's nobody beyond the reach of God. There's nobody that has sinned too much that they cannot repent and believe in Jesus Christ. There's an invitation out there. Believes in him. This is the pathway. It's faith. Will we choose to believe in the finished work of Jesus on the cross or some other idea that we have that we think may or may not work for us being in heaven one day? Shall not perish. This is the rescue. God created hell for the devil and his demons. Not a single human has to go there unless people reject the good news of Jesus Christ. We are rescued from this, but have eternal life. This is the reward. And it's not just a long time. It's a quality of life. In his presence is fullness of joy, and that can be our eternity. And this rescue offer of Jesus is much more urgent than we even think. This is, this is an urgent thing. In verse 17, look at how Jesus describes this. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only son. We are already condemned apart from Jesus. So our default position is that we are enemies of God. I'm not an enemy of God. I'm neutral. No, we are enemies of God because of our sin. Well, I don't know. That's a bit dramatic. We are the ones that underestimate how wicked our sin is and how holy our God is. And again, we, we focus on being offended that anyone would call us a sinner or an enemy of God. Jesus didn't come to condemn us. We're already condemned. The last verse of this chapter is a summary of the whole chapter. It says this in verse 36, whoever believes in the son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. It's already there. This is an urgent plea from Jesus that we would allow him to make us born again. You know, at the, at the seafood boil, like I'm, I'm spending all this money, I'm all excited, I got music on. It was really, actually really hard to find the right kind of music to play during a seafood boil. But I couldn't start without taking a few minutes to pray for the people in Ukraine. How, how could I celebrate such a big thing knowing that they're fleeing for their lives over there and people are dying? And so we took a few minutes and we prayed. And I think back to a few weeks before the war started, you can find these articles. Dozens of nations were telling their citizens in Ukraine, get out, get out. There's a troop buildup happening. We don't have a good feeling about this. Get out. I mean, the USA was practically screaming out every move that was about to happen in advance and sharing all the intelligence, saying, it's going to happen. It's going to happen this week. Ambassadors were being pulled. There was a sense of urgency for this wrath that was coming, and it was true. And now there's 1.3 million people that are refugees fleeing this wrath. That was a possibility that ended up happening, tragically. This is guaranteed we're told in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. And the reasons to reject this beautiful offer, they're just not worth the trade. It's not worth it to hold on to anything. Look at how some people reject the offer. Verse 19, 
This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen that they have, what they have done has been done in the sight of God. Why would people reject this amazing offer? Well, one is that it requires repentance. The scriptures here say that men love darkness because their deeds were evil. It, it, it requires us saying, I'm going to stop doing this to come to Christ. It does not require pre-perfection. We don't clean ourselves up and then come to Jesus holy. That's impossible. That's an impossible transformation. But we do have to count the cost and say, am I willing to give up and turn from sin to receive a million times fold the gift that Jesus wants to give me? And then as we come to him and he makes us born again, we are given newness of life and we have the strength to fight against sin. We don't only have the capacity to, to do better apart from Jesus. So some reject it because repentance is difficult. Others reject it because of, a, of humility, right? We have to come into the light. It's, trusting in Jesus is admitting that we can't earn our way to heaven and we're actually not good enough to get to heaven. Only Jesus is good enough and so putting our trust in his sacrifice is humbling. We have to humble ourselves and say, well, I wouldn't have done the snake thing if I were God, and, and I wouldn't have done the cross thing if I were God. And eventually we have to come to the point of saying, well, I'm not God, but he sure loves me, and I'm going to trust in his goodness and in his way above anything that I think. And we have to let him be our substitute. Take the trade of Jesus on the cross instead of us being punished for our sins. We take trades like this all the time, right? When, when somebody is deciding whether or not they should get married, they take the trade of saying, I have freedom to date a few people. I will no longer be looking around. I'm making a covenant with one person, but it's worth it. I think they're going to be faithful to me. I think this is going to be a better life. I'm choosing this. And they take the trade. Parents take the trade, right? When parents are trying to figure out if they should have kids, they give up a lot to have kids, right? You give up your sanity to have children. You give up your free time. You give up your sanity to have children. You give up all your money, your sanity. I mean, like, it's, it's crazy, right? If you actually do the math in advance, you can't afford kids, right? In 2015, there's some numbers that were updated for this year based on 2% inflation, right? Uh, so these are really low numbers, but based on that kind of inflation, it takes $272,000 to raise a kid from zero to 18, assuming no more inflation, right? So basically, you can't afford to have kids, but what do you do? You have kids. And even after moments of rebellion and disobedience and disrespect, they do one little adorable thing. And you're like, oh, it's so worth it. It's so great to be poor. I love it. These kids are amazing. Right. We take the trade. And we have to look at our life apart from Jesus or kind of doing a half-hearted attempt at following Jesus but still keeping one foot in the world. And we have to look at that and say, is that working for me? Are these destructive habits that are hurting people I love, is this working for me? Is it worth it for me to trade some of these things that I don't ever say publicly I love, but I love my sin? Am I willing to trade that for all that Jesus offers me? which is so much more than even security of a future in heaven. It's what he offers you to get through this difficult life. Take the trade, and those that do will find great joy in Jesus, just like John the Baptist we see in these last verses we're looking at. Look at verse 29 with me. 
People came to John the Baptist and said, everyone's following Jesus now. You're losing your crowd. And he's excited about that. He says, the bride belongs to the bridegroom. The church belongs to Jesus. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater and I must become less. Joy comes when we start to follow Jesus. Not ease, not always a change of circumstances, but joy because God is with us in the difficult times. And joy comes as we point other people to Jesus like John the Baptist did. As, as we look and say, you're, you're going to love following Jesus. John the Baptist had such great joy that Jesus would increase and he would decrease. I don't care if I'm famous. He would, he would eventually die. It would break, break Jesus' heart that John the Baptist would die. But John the Baptist took the stance that we all need to take. It needs to be less about Andy. It needs to be less about me and more about Jesus. Less about what I want and my desires and more about God's kingdom and his mission. And as I make that trade and transition, I will find joy in following Jesus. And many people here have made that decision. Many people here have realized, wait, being a Christian isn't about filling out a census data. It's not about coming to church and, and attending. It's not about, well, I guess I'm a Christian because I'm not these other religions. Jesus says you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. And many of you have made that decision to say, God, will you save me? God, will you make me born again? And you've experienced the power of God that slowly sanctifies us, it changes us, it helps us to begin following after him where we find joy, we hurt less people, and then we make mistakes again and we get back into funks and bad seasons and we realize he must increase, I must decrease. And we fix that perspective and we hear the gospel again and realize it's all about this. I mean, like it's, it's all about this. John 3.16 is famous for a reason. All of life, every category is about this. And so if you haven't made that decision, that's, that's something you need to consider. You have to look at your life and say, is it worth the trade? Count the cost. Don't make an emotional decision you'll regret in a week. Don't make a shallow decision that you're like, I don't know. I'll just you can't scam God into heaven. You can't say, oh, yeah, I'll say yes, and then, but I'll keep doing my own thing. God's not an idiot. God's going to know if we are sincerely you know, regretting our sin and wanting him. But if that's where you're at, then you can express that to God in, in a simple prayer in your heart. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that. So everyone would just close their eyes and bow their heads. If you desire to choose to follow Jesus today, raise your hand so I can just lead you in a prayer. Awesome. I see hands popping up all over. Think it through. Count the costs. But raise your hand if that's the decision you're making. Awesome. For those of you that have raised your hands, you can pray something like this out loud or in the silence of your own heart. As long as it's sincere, the Lord hears you. You could say, dear God, I know that I'm a sinner. I need your salvation. I believe Jesus is God. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and rose again three days later. And my only hope for heaven is Jesus. Make me a new creation. Give me the power I need to follow you and help me to walk in newness of life. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, if you've made that decision, then the angels in heaven are rejoicing, and we rejoice with you. Amen. It's a, it's a big deal to make. It's, like, it's a real big deal. It's like you're born, and then you're born again. It's like the big deal. And so you need to, to let us help you with that. And so we're going to have someone over here. Pastor Raul is going to be over here in the corner. Come and find him after the service like people did last service. Just walk over here. We've got a Bible that we want to give you. We want to point you to some next steps and resources that will help you in your new journey with the Lord. And we couldn't be happier. If you would like prayer this morning, we're going to have a prayer team available here right now. You can come forward to receive prayer. But God bless you guys. I'm really excited because Pastor Ron Armstrong's back to teach John chapter 4 next week. And so we'll see you next week. God bless.